build embedded frameworks. Who puts bubble wrap in a podcast room? We're <laughs> 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 the wrong room. This is the Nash, the Nash Dance Podcast. Welcome to NashDev, a podcast about software engineering and the Nashville developer community. Today we've got Rodney Norris, Will Golden, and me, Jason Orndorff. Uh, and we have a grab bag of topics here. Uh, we're going to talk about IDEs, recruiters, boilerplates, how to ship features, and something called nerves. So let's get right to it. So we've got a couple things to talk about this week. At least I have these notes that I've written down that I, I can't decipher anymore, but we'll, uh, we'll work through it together. Uh, first thing on this list is something called NERVS. Cool. So uh, NERVS is a platform and a framework. It's like libraries, but also a bunch of tooling. And it's a project for Elixir to... So I hear, I hear that NERVS is a uh, framework for building websites using JavaScript. Yes. Is that right? No. Oh. Not at all. Uh, so yeah, so it's a, it's a mixture of a lot of stuff. It's basically a bunch of open source tools that a group of people are gluing together. So one piece of it is like tool chains and systems to build a firmware for some, they, it says embedded, but actual EEs will say it's not embedded for small computers, Raspberry Pis, BeagleBone and Blacks, um, okay. like small embedded Linux devices. So, so it's nothing to do with JavaScript or websites at all? Not at all. Okay, you can so run websites on it. But it's for it's for it's for these little little computers. Yes, and it's for it's for making what exactly? It's for basically building a software that will run on a little computer. So it wraps a build root to run like a stripped down Linux distro, so it's just like the minimum. And the firmwares end up being like start at about fifteen megabytes, and they boot in three to six seconds, and oh, they cool. run the Erlang VM, and you can actually do Elixir Erlang or Lisp flavored Erlang. And Erlang started in that kind of space, and it's like a fault-tolerant language, and right. it's functional, and it's really good. It, it fits really nicely in that embedded world because you can make really solid firmware, whereas usually all that's written in C++, and it has to be perfect, and people spend a lot of time to get it right. Whereas now you can write a lot higher-level code that mm -hmm. is very fault-tolerant and works really well really easily in a modern functional language. That's really interesting. So if you have a bug in Erlang, and your process hits this corner case and crashes. It, there's a supervisor process that was watching for that. And it's going to restart it, yep. and everything's going to be okay. Yes. Um, which is like a huge difference from the like C, C++ world that you were just talking about. Because, you know, in that world, on an embedded device, you know, you crash, you just like <laughs> take down the operating system, yes. everything's horrible. Um, and the, the, the all state your, of all people... All of your resistors start popping off the board. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, the state of... of of people who wrote that code is just like perpetual terror yeah. and, and, and extreme risk averseness. Yes. Um, so the, the things that the Nerve guys did that actually is a little bit better than your average Raspberry Pi BeagleBone stuff mm -hmm. is some of them are embedded guys. So when you build this firmware, it is uh, three, well, four partitions. There's a boot partition. There's actually two OS partitions so that you can upgrade and restart and go to the other one. And then there's a data partition that is uh, read-write, but the two boot part, the two OS partitions are read-only, so you can just pull the plug on the device and it works fine. It doesn't get corrupted like Raspbian and things like that. That Sweet. you have to properly shut down before you do that. So it's really nice. So what have you been doing with this? So I have a fun little side project where uh, I'm trying to build. 
this device that has a website on it and it controls a turntable. So it's got a stepper motor and I've got an IMU and a GPS. So I'm reading from uh, like an I2C is a bus protocol for talking to, yeah. Wait, 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 yeah, yeah. wait, wait. You said a turntable. Yes. Are we talking about for records? Like a no. turntable for, okay, what got, what? <laughs> He doesn't want to give us an idea away, right? Oh, okay. All right. All right. So this is for... It's for for my super secret side project that is okay. taking forever and years and will probably never be done. But it's a fun little side project where I get to hack on hardware and learn Elixir. That's really cool. So that's kind of what it's become for me. It's my excuse to play with Elixir. So without giving your secret away, what is it? <laughs> without better telling us what it is. Yeah. Well, tell us what it is. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Tell us. Basically, it's a, I'm controlling a stepper motor on a continuous rotation turntable and making it go wherever I want it to go. All right, so we're back. We, we took like a 30-minute break there, had some beer, and now we're going to talk about... I flossed. <laughs> you want to talk about recruiters? It says here that you have something nice to say about recruiters. Oh, yeah. Well, so we were like digging through the potential topics list earlier and we're like, man, what are we going to talk about? Because we had something planned, but then the thing come up, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, and I was like, you know, on the list is there was a uh, topic on the, why can't I talk? <laughs> I haven't slept in five days <laughs> since my son's been born. I haven't slept. Um, on the list was uh, just, it just says recruiters. And I was like, you know, um, what I wanted to say was, recruiters kind of get a bad rap and we've had, I've had this discussion a lot mm-hmm. on uh, NashDev, uh, the Slack channel. We are incredibly privileged as software engineers and architects and managers and whatever to have people literally calling us and begging us, begging us for them to give us money to go work <laughs> somewhere. So whenever I get a, whenever I get an email or a phone call or whatever, like I always try to be courteous and friendly to these people because you know what, one day you might need them and it doesn't, you know, like it doesn't do you any good to be a jerk to them. They're not trying to be a jerk to you. They're just trying to, they're trying to do their job. Right. Um, and it's just, it's just a good idea to like not burn bridges. Right. It's a good idea to treat people like people and treat people like how you like all the time I see people like, Oh God, I got a call from a recruiter. What an asshole. Like <laughs> really? Like somebody's calling you to give you $120,000. Like, come on. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like I agree with all that, but there are also are terrible recruiters. Oh sure. I mean, there, there's terrible recruiters, right? There's people <laughs> that's going to email you for a Java position when you haven't done Java in six years, or there's going to be people that's like, Oh, I'm looking for, you know, someone with three years of PHP experience, you know, and you're like, well, I, you know, I probably don't want to do that or something. Right. Yeah. But you know, again, we're still incredibly fortunate. Yeah, I, we, I do completely agree with that sentiment. Like it, yeah. it, it kind of gets me on a roll about privilege in general, about our positions. Like we get, like I think I mentioned this on the podcast before we get to sit at a desk in air conditioning and type and use our brains. Right. Like I have a little bit of guilt personally because my dad is an auto mechanic and he's like working in a hot garage right now. It's 96 degrees and he works outside, you know, like under his carport, yeah. you know, turning a wrench. And I'm like, yeah. I don't have to do that. I get to sit here and talk to you guys on a podcast, which is great. Yeah. Right. Um, similar. <laughs> my dad was a tugboat captain was gone 21 days of the month and home 10. What about in February? <laughs> Always the same 21 and 10 anyway, but it only has 28 days. I know <laughs> it would go over the next month. <laughs> Just fine. <laughs> Yeah, I don't really have much else to say about recruiters other than just like, hey, you know, treat them like people. Um, 
be cordial with them. Yeah. yeah. You, I agree. You, you might need them one day. Yeah. Right? I agree. And if you encounter a bad one, just ignore them. It's, it's easy enough to do that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's super easy just to pick up your phone and say, Hey, I'm not interested right now. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep your contact information if I ever need you, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, um, there's a couple of recruiters that I actually would do, but if I, if I end up finding myself in a position to need one, like, mm-hmm. um, Scott Gordon at Vaco, I would definitely call him, uh, the folks at technology advice. They're awesome. They sponsored NASGS and a couple others that like the ones that are super into, um, giving back to the community. Like they, they kind of win me over a little bit because like they get it. They get that. It's not just about, you know, filling, single placement, single placement or filling bodies. It's about building, building relationships. And that's yeah. kind of what I'm talking about here is like, yeah. you, you know, it's a symbiotic thing. You, they, they want something from you. You want something from them. You know, you should build that relationship and make yeah. it grow and make it, make it beneficial for a, a greater body of people. Yeah. And, and ideally recruiters should be a benefit to you because they, ideally the, they want to place you, but they also want to keep the relationships with the employers. So they know them. And a lot of times you can get a lot more feedback through a recruiter than you would normally just applying at places because they have that relationship so they can have like that back channel communication and kind of give you pointers and things like that instead of just, you know, cold. Yeah. I mean, as a manager, like, I I don't know if I would personally like use a recruiter to go find a candidate. Hopefully I would, um, you know, be connected well enough in the community and and be able able to like reach out and talk Mm -hmm. to folks at a more personal level. But, you know, like I said, but like, again, like the, the amount, of, it depends on how many people you're trying to hire. How sure. Big yeah. If you're trying to hire is. 15 people and you know, it's, 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 I mean like I've had to do interviewing and it's really hard. It's yeah. really hard to do good interview, which is something we could probably talk about later, but like doing, yeah, you know, good interviews to, to, to really vet, vet, vet yeah. folks. Like that's hard. So maybe having a recruiter do that pre-screen process yeah. for you, that's, that could be super beneficial, but. Cause ideally they have those relationships. So they're pre-screening that and they know like, you know, if, if you're hiring for a C-sharp job, they're not going to send you a, you know, PHP person. Right. Yeah. Again, just to reiterate, I just, I think the, the key takeaway I wanted to have on this little blurb was mm-hmm. just like, it's really, it's really fun and easy to like just bash on, on people. Yeah. Right. And they're, they're just trying to help you out. Yeah, they're not trying exactly. to be jerks. I think it, it, that's good. Just like in general life advice, like have empathy and understand that those people are humans. Like no one's trying to be a bad guy. Like no one right. thinks they're a bad guy. Like they're just like trying to have a job and do the thing. And like, ideally, you know, it's it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was gonna say the empathy thing is really a good point because like, you know, you'll get an email and they're like, they they don't get the buzzwords right. They don't get the the the, the lingo just just perfect, right? And you have to think like they're doing the best. They they don't like this is Japanese. It might as well be Japanese to some people. Some of them are really good. Some of them know you know kind of know the stack a little bit. They're kind of a technical background, but some of them are just like wow, uh, I have no idea what uh, you know a, a database actually is or whatever, right? Um, so like, man, if you look at it from that perspective, they're, they're approaching something that's completely foreign to them and trying to communicate with you. So like, that's actually kind of incredible. Yeah. All right. Next. So Jason, uh, do you use an IDE or a text editor? I use Emacs. What is Emacs? Emacs is like an operating system, right? (laughs) Emacs is a text editor, um, that earned the reputation that, that, that Emacs stood for 8 megs and constantly swapping in an age when 8 megs was like all your memory and then some. And today, it's still 8 megs and it never swaps. It's just like, it's probably petite compared to Atom. I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, Atom takes like, I don't know, like 400 gigs of RAM right now. I don't know. Yeah, Emacs, um, it's a text editor, but it, it is programmable 
in this weird dialect of Lisp that a lot of people have learned just because they use Emacs all the right like Emacs it I learned it at an impressionable age and it got into my fingers and my muscle memory and now I like I know how to do everything in Emacs I know like 3000 commands in Emacs and there's no point in ever switching to something else um, and the way I feel about it is like Emacs is terrible it's so horrible if you ever have a hand injury and you lose a pinky would you switch <laughs> Like, if I, like, I, yeah, I would, I would be unemployable after that. If I, like, I wouldn't be able to reach the control key. So if it was my left pinky, I'd be in big trouble. You'd be like a foot pedal. Do, do yeah. you remap your control key to caps lock? Uh, I don't. Uh-huh. Not yet. I might. Yeah. Um, so, so I've paired with Jason one time and watched him use Emacs. It's, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Yeah. And like, it's not yeah. specifically no. Emacs related, but one cool thing I'll actually learn from him, and I try to do it... Um, whenever I can is, you know, like he, he, like he'll be like bouncing around the code and in, instead of like uh, remembering line numbers, he'll just throw in like three or four question marks yeah. and then he'll just search for those question marks and, and like be able to bounce between the codes. Like I actually like adding markers into the code and be able to bounce back to where he was. And I was like, I've never, I never would have thought of that. That's amazing. So like, I, tried, like I, stole thing. It, I totally stole it from you. Know? <laughs> but like Emacs actually has some feature you're supposed to use. It's like you control X R some, I don't know. What. Yeah. There's some, there's something <laughs> called tags. I don't even I don't know. know. But in yeah. any case, um, but yeah, I just use the three question marks because it's like super dumb and it always works. Yeah. And except just, just recently I had this happen where I was editing a chat log, like a <laughs> megabyte of chat log. And I was like, oh, I need to, you know, I need to come back and fix this part and hit, you know, put some question marks in. And then I was searching for it and I could not find the question marks again because like the person that I was talking to in that chat log uses question marks like oh like like they're free yeah like, okay yeah <laughs> so let's talk about e- extreme usage of punctuation because that's really <laughs> this is important I hate that man like when somebody like puts fifty exclamation points like, really, are you really that excited really like I want to send me a picture I want to see your face like, that's, <laughs> come on or okay or and this is like uh, chat etiquette right like, yeah like, when someone just periods you like just like says a word like one word. Or one letter period. Yeah, that's yeah. like that's like a middle finger. Like if it's just like a full sentence, sure. But if it's like if it's they... like K period, it's like F- what do I do? I, I pissed them <laughs> off. You get the feeling like especially if they capitalize the word and they put the period, it's like they really mean it. They mean business. It just, it just this got internet real. serious business. What about excessive emoji though? That's I'm I'm, a, I'm an excessive emoji person. Excessive yeah, user. How do you so, know about well, I've, I've tamed my GIF usage down because I've, it's bit me a couple times <laughs> on Giphy. So, uh, so I just recently learned on Mac, you can do is like control command space to get the emoji. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I did not know that. I was always like copying emoji from somewhere. I like go to the internet and like copy an emoji. I could only use emoji in like Slack because it's in there. And now yeah. I like have emoji at my fingertips <laughs> for everything. <laughs> Well, now you can buy the, the poop emoji at Walmart for 15 bucks. Yes, it's, as it's a like a, the size of a beanbag. Yeah. So in case you wanted that. So, but back to text <laughs> editors and IDEs for a second. I once used an IDE for, I, when I was doing a like, database tools job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used Microsoft's IDE, yep. and it is incredible. Yes. So, so I, there so, are Java IDEs that are also like yes. magic. Yes. So I did Visual Studio for about nine years. <laughs> I was a C-sharp developer. And I think it definitely, I still usually use, so I do use Mac stuff now. I still use IntelliJ the majority of the time. Right? Yeah, Don't you just hit good. dot space and it just writes your code for you? Like Something like that. Yeah. 
But I also, uh, about two years ago, when I stopped doing .NET, I, I made it a point to learn more text editors. I, yeah. I picked up Vim, and I, I went through uh, Vim Adventures, something that's a website. If you Google Vim Adventures, it's like a role-playing style, like looks like old yeah, NES yeah. Final Fantasy, and it teaches you Vim. And I'm still not great at Vim, but I'm passable at Vim, to where like today I have used Vim, IntelliJ, and Atom. <laughs> I've always been like a very simple text editor person. Like, um, like I use Notepad plus plus on Windows, and yeah. then like uh, Atom or Sublime on Mac or TextMate or whatever. Um, but whenever I was I was working at Stratasan, I was pairing with uh, Brian Daly, and he's like a magic Vim user, and uh, like I, I I felt crippled next to him because I couldn't like I couldn't hop on his keyboard and show him like okay go go over here or whatever. So like I p- I started picking up a little bit of it, bit of it. So now I have Vim bindings enabled in Atom because like I learned some of the really cool like how to jump through words and delete stuff and you know some of the basic basics of yeah. it. I- I'm decent in Vim, but I'm not one of those like I see other people use Vim and it looks like they're moving through Vim at the power of thought. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just not that person. It just I came to it too late. I just don't have the muscle memory and all that. Yeah, I know half a dozen people who are like that with Emacs, um, and I can't tell you how many times people have like gone oh oh let me like let me use your laptop let me like show you the point in the code that i'm talking about and they like can't can't deal with the emacs so there's a definite cost right yeah um it's almost like protection but so, you, you retain you, control <laughs> yeah <laughs> no you can't use it yeah that's right. <laughs> that's what switching your switching your caps lock key to control i'm convinced that that's that's what that's about mainly so, so one of my students at the iron Nerd, uh, had a swedish keyboard and that threw me for a loop. Like it's yeah. actual keyboard, like the keys, the letters were Swedish. My typing speed went down to like 20 words per minute. Like it was just like, <laughs> and uh, eventually like I got smart. I was like, oh, hey, I can go to his, um, the Mac keyboard layout or the key- keyboard switcher and switch it back to English. Just, just, just but the keys are different, right? The layout's operating different. system settings, no big deal. Right. But you know, like some of the keys are smaller and in different positions, but like wow. it was really strange. Um, but maybe appreciate <laughs> the, my keyboard a lot. Um, what do you miss about IDEs? Like, what's the killer feature? Well, I still use them a lot. Uh, yeah. The th- things I find I use IDEs the most for, which you can probably get in Vim and stuff like that with plugins, is uh, finding usages through a whole project, uh, find a find place. I, in IntelliJ, I use move a lot. So you can, like, move this file to a subfolder, and it, it'll automatically search for all the references of that file and all the usages of that class and move it for you. Did you ever use ReSharper? Yes. I, I was a... Ton, I was What's a huge that? ReSharper. Okay, so ReSharper is a plugin for uh, Visual Studio made by JetBrains, who makes IntelliJ. So okay. it like gives you shortcut keys. So in so say you're doing C Sharp and you're writing a class, um, there's like shortcuts for you can just like start typing a variable. And uh, I forget now because it's been like two years since I used it. But there's like all these shortcut keys to like just dump out properties and do all the get set. And then you can do like uh, refactoring hotkeys. So you can like highlight this thing and it'll automatically like separate out that whole clause into a function if you want to. Yeah, it is or, like stubs for you, imports. Yeah, like that. And, and it'll suggest refactor. So it's like, hey, you can change this if statement to a ternary or whatever. And it like has suggestions for like code styles stuff like that. And it's super helpful. Like I wrote a ton of code with ReSharper because it just like, it, once you get used to it, it, uh, it does make you a lot faster. Um, but I did notice when I stopped writing C-sharp that I had become reliant on some of that stuff. I was so used to having that that just writing stuff from scratch just felt like it took forever. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I wonder, um, f- personally for myself, like um, how much 
more efficient I would be if I used an ID that kind of suggested stuff. But like, I find because I don't use one, I'm able, to, I'm, I'm forced to keep a more um, distinct mental map of the um, of the app I'm writing yeah, I because I have to kind of remember where all these things are or, or what those <laughs> what the interface is. Um, my twin brother, he is he's for whatever reason we kind of diverged in our paths of developers, both developers. But like he went down the .NET route and you know C Sharp, he's amazing. He's, a thousand times better programmer than I am, but it just happened to go to C sharp, uh, C sharp land. And, um, he uses resharper and I'll sit and watch him like code stuff. And I'm like, what the f are you doing? What is this? Like, it's just like, he'll hit seven keys and all of a sudden, like he write the whole thing. I, I yeah. talked about this, the space dot thing, yeah, or whatever, yeah. like the whole thing's written. And he's like, it hits the run button. And it's like, all of a sudden there's an app. I'm like, what? how did you do that? That's amazing. Well, visual studio also writes a lot of code for you. Um, so there's like lots of code behind things. So like to build a, a form, like, and I got to the point where I, I like knew what it was doing behind the scenes and I could do a lot of that stuff myself. But like in like application development, you like drop a button on like a GUI and it automatically, like you double click it and just takes you to the code where that code yeah. gets executed and it wires it all up for you. It hooks up all the handlers and all that for you behind the scenes in like the dot designer file. So, but none of that is what I miss about okay. Visual Studio. Yeah. So like all the, all the stuff where it kind of, helps you with these purely mechanical tasks messing around with code yeah yeah I, I can take or leave that but what visual studio had back in the day was like magical integration with the debugger oh yeah um so you, you know you hit the run button it's running your code and it gets to a certain point that like where there's something that's never supposed to happen it's really easy to just like have it stop there and show you what's going on show you the values of all the variables um and that, you know, like I don't, I still don't even have that in Emacs, even though there's yeah, supposedly I, I, projects that do that for you. I miss that. Yeah. So I, I, I got that running it's the in, with, with the Python in, <laughs> yeah. um, in IntelliJ with like Python at website running in a vagrant box. You can hook all that up. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's not as easy as it is in, in Visual Studio because it's all Microsoft and all just works for you and it's great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's funny because having done that for the longest time and now doing like, I write a lot, like my, when I write Elixir, I don't debug at all. Like you can, there's like pry stuff and all that, yeah. but I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't debug it. I just like, I just write smaller functions and test the individual functions in the REPL yeah. <laughs> or like log stuff for the console if I have to. Is that a difference in programming languages or is it just like how you're adapting to not having that tool? It's how I'm adapting to not yeah. having that tool. Like it's still useful. It's like there are times where like it's really useful to have it, but I also uh, like the new tool of having a REPL and being able to just uh, like jump in a REPL and try just small things out. That's like, the I, thing. I, I, I'll, oh, I'll do that. It's got the REPL too. Yeah, the I know. It has does. a REPL. It does. On my first class teaching JavaScript, um, I think we were in like we were like a week and a half in to like after like actually learning the language and stuff, and um, I forgot to teach my, tell my students about the debugger. Like we were like like seriously like a weekend weekend, <laughs> and then I I was just doing something. I was like, hold on a second, this isn't working right. So I popped up in the debugger, and they were like, what the hell? What is that? And I showed <laughs> them. Oh, I, I showed them that, and they're like, why didn't you show us this? Because <laughs> like they've been like struggling with you know like right, whatever like whatever reason the button was. Especially when you're starting, you're just starting out to to be able to like. Step, you, you, step know, through you know it and goes look at all the variables, step to your yeah. code, but to actually see it, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. That, yeah, that in conjunction with the uh, there's a, an article and like a video and like this demo website that kind of shows the um, call stack execution or the um, the event loop 
and it uh-huh. shows you how the event loop works and you can see the events uh, uh, queuing yeah. and, and stuff like that. Like those two things that like that just like kind of opened their mind. They're like, whoa, what? What is this? It's magic. It's not magic. It's cool. It's it's, it's kind of magic, but it's not magic. I understand it. Right? It's, it's, yeah. it's really cool. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's that's what a good idea does. So we're back. We just took a quick break. Uh, Rodney had to take off because he's hosting NashJS tonight. We're having like a Google uh, workshop thing. Um, so next on the list, we're going to talk about um, shipping features incrementally. So I wrote that down, but I don't know what that means. So why don't why don't you tell me? We kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, I was it two episodes ago with um, the nature of software development and. Uh, uh, how we how I how I approach it is um, you know everything's going to be behind a feature flag so you can kind of ship that code at any point in time for a feature um, and it's kind of like masked from the user user never sees it until you're ready for them to see it so you can, yeah. it's continually in production mm-hmm. um, but in terms of the incremental part of that right like that means um, if you have uh, say, say you're building a blog the the first iteration of the blog is just going to be like you know, a database of posts and that's all it's all, all it's going to do is display a post and you click on a post and it shows a, the view of the detail of the post. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the next iteration of that feature could be adding comments or stuff like that. Um, th- those are more like more along the lines of, um, features themselves in, in the traditional sense, but like how you would, in, in terms of like uh, a problem, that's how you would approach the, the incremental uh, piece of it. Right. Like you would, um, you have a master, um, idea of what the fe- the, the main feature is going to be and then yeah. you just kind of f- reduce it down to its smaller smallest point and then build build onto it yep. in, in pieces um the really tough part is finding that um that starting point like what is good enough to ship right now yeah. and what is small enough to ship it uh on time right right, right. that's really really hard yeah um man if there was like some master classes that you could take i would probably sign up for them because it's it's tough so when you ship stuff incrementally, it seems to me that then you've 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 added this boolean to your product that like now you you ha- kind of have to test it both ways at the same time. You have to keep it running both ways. Um, and yeah, then and that's that's tr- tremendously difficult. You have multiple teams working on different things. So now there's like four or five different flags. Does does that actually happen in practice? Sure. Really? Yeah, especially um, especially here as we have multiple, you know, like seven or eight teams working on different things at once so there's you know all of our QA folks are having to like toggle these flags on and off and talk and we have here here at Emma we have different account types we have you know uh, legacy users we have pro users we have pro plus users we have um, agency users which have their own sub accounts like there's all these different account types you have to test against so like it may like um, adding a feature is not like this trivial thing, right? Like it's, it's, you're having to test against all these different account types because they all have, you know, small different behavioral differences in yeah. what they can do. So yeah. And, and from the QA department's like standpoint, they don't know what exactly, they, I mean, they can't tell like out of thin air what you might break <laughs> like behind your feature flag. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, seems, they can kind of hard. isolate it to a specific area, mm-hmm. like um, for the most part, there's sometimes where it's kind of screwy off the left field, but, um, uh, yeah, like a lot of times they're gonna. Uh, I mean, part of our process is to do like a regression test before we before we send it live, anyways. But um, yeah, it's 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 really t- really tough as a developer because one of the things we kind of um, uh, what's the word <laughs> encourage, right? Like yeah. one of the things we really encourage is to uh, have the developer do a smoke test and do a full feature test before you send it to QA, right? Because right. there's that there's that com lag that's between the two. 
so like have it have it ready yeah and, right. and like kind of like your thumbs up like yeah i've tested it i know it works so mm-hmm. like if you come back to me i'm going to be completely surprised i'm going to be completely stumped instead of like oh yeah that that happened that third time i did that i thought it was just a fluke right? sure like, right you know so with my work on firefox one of the things that we do sometimes is we'll have a feature be on in the nightly build and we just have an if statement in the code so that once so it'll be on the nightly build and it'll be on in what's called developer edition which anybody can download i mean anybody can download any of this stuff actually but you can download developer edition and it's kind of like firefox for developers right um and it'll be you know this feature will be on there most of the features that i'm talking about these are things like you know the 19th different form of border radius so that you can like use this their features targeted at developers right? right um so uh, or they're like some javascript syntax thing right um so they're not you know, they're not things that are going to break the experience for end users. Um, but we'll, we'll ship something that only to the users that are like on bleeding edge versions of Firefox. And then as you get closer to like the beta release and the actual final shipping release that goes out to everybody, um, features just automatically get turned off or, or, or prepped off so that you'd have to actually go in there and find some checkbox in the UI and turn them on again. Um, but then there's an issue with that, which is like, if you know, on the rare occasion where we, we do we do something that um, uh, really does affect like the end user experience something some in some way, like something that has big performance implications for slower machines, um, we can't we like the the actual person receiving those super early uh, bleeding edge editions like those, those are those are our early adopters and those are like web developers who have like really beefy boxes and laptops and stuff. Um, uh, so we just won't know oh, <laughs> until, wow. the, right, until, until later. Until it's like too late. <laughs> right, yeah. We won't know until later. Um, so, so, yeah. So we're looking at being able to do this more. That, that's actually a really cool, um, like the, the whole idea of nightly, like a nightly release or like the, the developer, like Canary Builds or whatever yeah. in Chrome. Um, having that uh, like a beta channel for an app so like even like even for an app like emma or an app like um uh eventbrite's app or whatever being able to actually like as a user preference yourself into hey i want the new hotness and like be like kind of opt yourself into a beta group and be able to release to those people and get feedback uh, would actually be really interesting really interesting the way we kind of do it right now is like we um have our account managers like reach out to customers uh, like on oh, a cool. personal level and say, "Hey, yeah. we'd like to include you on this as a test user. Would you like to do it?" Or through uh, intercom messaging th- through the app. Well, that can be really nice too because you, you they actually you can if you're having a conversation with them, then then your customer can it's less likely, likely tell you how what it feels like to use the feature. Like right. you get much better. Yeah, totally. Kind of got, got a ton of value. But there's something like but, when you were talking about that, about having people opt in on purpose, right? Like that's the exact thing that causes it not to be a statistical sample of the, right of our user population. Right. Um, so, so I know that something some websites do is they they just uh, randomly opt some users in. So sure, it's the I exact think, same thing. Yeah, except I think they're Facebook doing it for does you. that. Uh, yeah, Facebook GitHub does it. Um, uh, I think GitHub does it. Twitter um, definitely does it. Um, uh, so yeah, like yeah. just the other day, I was on Facebook, and all of a sudden, my when I, when I focus the status bar. Um, the whole screen darkens, like a light box comes up and the status bar is the only thing that's like illuminated. And like that just happened recently. And I was like, does that happen on my wife's computer or my wife's account? It doesn't. So like huh. I've somehow or another got opted into that, which I'm not sure what that means. But um, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, okay, well, they're watching you. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. 
they all are. Man, okay. Yeah, I want to go. I want to go on that topic. <laughs> I've noticed that. <laughs> I noticed that whenever I have conversations, um, my, my Facebook ads are relevant to my conversations I've had, and I haven't searched for stuff. Like I was talking about camping, and all of a sudden I have camping ads in my uh, my Facebook feed. I'm like, are they listening to me? I don't know if this is true or not. Uh, so like the other day, I was like, I'm gonna test it. I told the page, I was like, I really need some ballet slippers. Like I really, and I said like three or four times, I haven't had any ballet slipper ads yet, no. but um, we'll see. I'll report back. So we got one last topic, uh, which is boilerplates. So this is, um, I, I put this on here because I so want to talk about. I got a question. Yeah. Okay. What is a boilerplate in real life? Like, is that like? Yeah. What, what is the actual physical object uh, like of a boilerplate? What does it do? Um, I, I think if you, like if you go in the suburbs and buy a house, that's like this boilerplate. You've got this thing well, that like sure. represents what your life is. But what does the like? word originate from? Because like I'm oh, not actually sure what, is what, a, boilerplate? what a boilerplate. I have is. no idea. You know, like have you ever thought about that? I have. It's become it's but become such a generic word that we don't actually know what the word is. I didn't look it up. To the internet. <laughs> Imagine it's like it's like on a boiler and there's like a plate and you like you cook stuff on it or something. I don't know. I'm guessing. It's probably something. Boilerplate etymology. Define boilerplate. Boilerplate means rolled steel for making boilers. What? Ah. Rolled steel for making boilers. Also, writing that is cliched or expresses a generally accepted opinion or belief. That's kind of like all my points on the podcast. So my topics are boilerplate. (laughs) So what? Rolled steel for making boilers. Oh, so that makes sense. Did you get the newspaper definition? Because I can get a different definition. So it's like it's like sheet metal that you can make a boiler out of. This one says um, newspaper and now information technology slang for unit of writing that can be used over and over without change. You know what we should do? We should Google image search boilerplate and see what it comes up. From 1890s to the 1950s, publicity items were cast or stamped in metal ready for the printing press and distributed to newspapers as filler. So there was some like newspaper print supply company that would just send this stuff out. Here are some ads in case you have blank spaces in your paper. (laughs) That's awesome. And that's what it is. That's where it comes from. Gutenberg would be proud. So here's like you guys can't see this, but I'm showing Jason a picture of of some metal sheets. So that's that's the uh, it's it's like sheets of of like like I don't know, like an inch thick. It looks like a piece of plywood, but it's metal. It's just metal sheets. That's what it is. God, this is a exciting. It's, it's, this is riveting, <laughs> riveting podcast material here. Uh, I saw what you did there. Riveting. I didn't even mean to do that. That was a complete accident. So you saw it. I didn't see it. <laughs> I'll see myself up. <laughs> so boilerplates, uh, do you use them? Me? Uh, I'm not, I, gosh. Like, it feels like, so I, I, know, that, I know that you've, you, you at least have used them on projects that we've worked together on. Um, and uh, my experience with that is that I have, I never have any idea what's going on, but like when I go into a project that was started using boilerplate, it always has stuff in it that's not being used, um, totally, and it has yeah. it has structure too. Like, and that's the part that's the point, right? But it has structure that's not being used, um, and so it it gets me a little bit. Uh, I, I, like, I, there's a story of 
um, some manufacturing process where there's an onion in the vat. Do you remember the story? I'll have to look this up too. But there's a story where um, of like somebody goes to like a factory, um, some executive comes in and they're being given the tour and they're like they're showing some chemical being prepared in a vat and somebody says, okay, and this is the point where we throw the onion in. And he's like, what is the onion? And they explain that like, Whoever it was that designed this industrial process always threw an onion in, so they kept doing it after he died. <laughs> Nobody knows why exactly. <laughs> um, and the story is that the executive gets like kind of miffed about this and tries to, you know, like it demands that they figure it out. Um, and it turns out that the, the the purpose of the onion is that like that's a way of telling if the vats at the right temperature. They just like kind of throw it in there and like based on what happens to the skin of the thing, they can like, right. So that, that, that is how I feel about like every single thing inside of a boilerplate that I don't understand is like, that could be used. I have no idea if it's important or not. So I have to kind of keep it alive. Um, yeah, to- totally. I, I completely agree with you. Um, I, like I, I've used them before and I've, um, I, I like to use them sometimes. Um, it's definitely one of those things that like you need to understand the tool that you're using instead of um, yeah. just blindly like, okay, that's how they do it. Um, for me, it's a really good way to um, explore different structures that people have come up with. And I can say, oh, cool, that's, that's, that's a cool way to do that, right? Um, it's just kind of like code reading, right? And yeah, so, that so is sometimes, cool. So sometimes, that's I'll, cool. Yeah. sometimes I'll find one. I was like, oh, that's how I would have done it. So then I could just point you to that thing and say, this is how I would have done it. Yeah. And then we could just work on a project together. It's really. It's sometimes it's it's just like just like the hackathon mentality. Like when we were, we worked on a project before uh, for like the prisoners right. drama or something. Yeah, and it was just like, oh crap! I've got three days to do this. I'm just going to clone some random boilerplate repo. I probably didn't even research. No, <laughs> and, and literally it got yeah. done within within 45 minutes of when it needed to be done. So if you had written it from scratch, we wouldn't have made it. Sure. Like, yeah. <laughs> Actually, we were like, or if you, had, if <laughs> if you were like, like on stage, like about to talk, and if I was you like, stopped yeah. to go to the bathroom, we wouldn't have made it. Like, <laughs> it was really close. That was fun. Um, so yeah, I mean, so, yeah, when every its, second matters, I yeah. guess. It has its, it has its benefits. I think like, um, you, yeah. you get to see like a full working implementation. So like a lot of times you see documentation, it's just little snippets of like, this, here's how you can kind of do this one thing or whatever. Um, but boilerplates are more like, Oh, here's an actual full fleshed out implementation of, you know, like an example of like a node app, right? Like a, here's a universal rendering or isomorphic rendering or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Here's how you would actually do that. Here's how you actually would um, populate your initial state. Here's how you would actually um, render this component tree down to a string and send it to the client and have the uh, all the routes respond correctly so that if you refresh when you're um, on you know, the about page, the about page will load with that correct component, you know, um, stuff like that, right? You actually can see that uh, without having to do a lot of digging. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying, I don't think you should start all your projects with a boilerplate, but it's definitely a, a good way to kind of um, explore a little bit, you know? Um, I, like, like earlier today on the Beginners and Mentors channel on, on the Nash Dev Slack, um, someone was asking about... Uh, how to deploy a React app, and uh, Rodney actually jumped in and said, "Hey, just send it to S3 if you're just serving index, index, an HTML file. That's all you need. Um, then do that. It's going to work fine." Uh, but then he got on a topic of actually wanting to serve it universally, so I actually just sent him to megaboilerplate.com and then said, "Hey, click the, right. the node, then Express, then select which CSS framework you want, and then which front-end app you're going to use, like Angular, um, I think it was Angular, Ember, and, and React. So you could choose React." choose which template language, choose if you want Redux or not, and then it like just spits out this thing. And then like, um, 
actually looked at the, the, the code that's generated and it's, you know, you can choose between Gulp and Webpack and uh, NPM scripts and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And I looked at it and I was like, wow, this is like as close as, there's a couple things I would change. I don't like how the actual folders are structured in terms of the separation between yeah. the front end app and the back end app. Uh, anyways, I was like, well, this is actually really close to what I would have just done from scratch because I've built enough React apps now that I know better, right? But like, yeah. um, I think it's a healthy um, idea to actually go and download a several boilerplates and just to see the different ways to structure stuff. Um, to see, you know, kind of a, it's like patterning, right? Like you learn, uh, learn different patterns and you learn different uh, ways to do things. That's really cool. I'm glad I asked. Cool. Yeah. All right, so let's do picks. Oh, okay. So uh, I, I recently just finished um, Leviathan Wakes. I'm actually sure if that's how you pronounce it. I think it is. But it's uh, book one of like six of the Expanse series, and it's uh, by James Corey. Um, the ending was kind of eye-rolly, but it, it kind of built up to the, the next books that's, that, that I'm starting to read. Really good book, uh, really good series, uh, so far at least. Okay, so my pick is A History of the World in 100 Objects. It's, you, it's a book. Oh, that's cool. It's also a podcast kind of thing. You can find it on your podcast thing. That's it. Hey, this is Rodney. We have some local conferences coming up. Music City Code is being held at Lipscomb University on August 18th through the 20th, and tickets are still available. Coder Fair will be on October 1st and 2nd at the National Software School. The call for papers is currently out. If you're interested in speaking, this is a great local conference to be involved in. November is also at Lipscomb University on November 20th and 21st. Early bird tickets are currently on sale, and the call for papers is also out. If you're interested in any of these, the links will be in our show notes. You've been listening to NashDev. We're a production of Relationary Marketing, edited by Rodney Norris and Clark Buckner. Like us on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud at NashDevCast. And if you review the show on iTunes, let us know, and we'll send you a sticker.